Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Pakistanomy. Uh, it just was in the recent past that we started this podcast and had episode one with Khuram Hussain with a fan in the background. Um, and fast forward to here in a post-pandemic or a pandemic world and we are hitting episode 100. Um, I want to thank all of you uh, for tuning in over uh, the years uh, on this podcast. I want to thank all of the guests who've uh, graced us with their time and their insights over the last few months. Um, and today's episode is a really special one, not only because it's episode 100, uh, but because I have the honor and the opportunity to talk with uh, Mr. Musaddaq Zulkarnayn, who is the chairman of Interloop Limited, the largest publicly traded and publicly owned textile companies in Pakistan. He's also chairman of Interloop Holding and its subsidiaries. Um, he also serves on the board of Karandas. And for those of you who tuned in a few months ago, uh, when we talked about RAST, Karandas played a key and critical role in that. And I think the, the RAST ecosystem, the rails that it has built for digital payments will transform Pakistan's economy. Um, so Musaddaq Saab, thank you so much for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you, Zaid. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's an honor and a pleasure to have a conversation with you and see what we, I can add to the knowledge of everybody and learn from you as well. Thank you. And and let's jump in with and start with Interloop. Um, it's obviously a success story that at least to me and people uh, of my generation who've looked at uh, wanting to be entrepreneurs or looked at Pakistan's entrepreneurial talent um, and what's possible. Um, it's a huge success story, right? It shows us what. Uh, Pakistani business is capable of that. It's capable of competing toe to toe with world class companies around the world and work with them and trade with them and get investment from them and expertise. Um, help us understand um, the journey that you've been on with Interloop, how it began, how far it's come, and then what's on the horizon. Okay, that it, it's a 30 year, uh, three year uh, long story. Uh, and uh, I would say, Pakistan has some wonderful organizations and uh, Interloop is one of those. But uh, when I see back on the hindsight, it appears that uh, not doing the business in typical uh, Pakistani uh, state culture style uh, was the beginning. And it was not a conscious decision, I would say, because we had no experience in business. So we, when we started this as a small cottage industry, Uh, we just implemented what we learned at home or our schools about being ethical. So now after 30 years, I think uh, I can say with quite certainty that the myth that uh, uh, if you follow ethics and be ethical, you cannot succeed has been broken. Uh, so we, we, I would say when we started, uh, the, the main reason for our success, uh, if I tabulate three or four or five of them, Uh, would be being ethical. Uh, then uh, you see uh, investing in uh, young, educated talent and nurturing it, giving respect to the workforce and investing and never being shy of investing into uh, new technology Re and reinvesting the earnings rather than you see uh, moving money here and there. Uh, what we In, in, in the very initial years when we started having success, what we realized is that even today, Pakistan has in the textile sector some great organizations which are very big. But when you see, see and have a look on the, on the global scale, uh, the size of our organizations is, is, is very small. They are like minions. Uh, and I, I keep repeating this uh, uh, statistics that the largest exporter from Pakistan is 400 plus million dollars. And the largest group out of Sri Lanka is $3 billion. Uh, so you can compare these sizes. Uh, so what, what we did was that we thought that we should, uh, uh, although to start with, it was a very cottage industry. Socks was a cottage uh, field at that stage. But we thought that we will keep on investing in just socks. Then you see after uh, five, six, seven years of success started diversifying within the textile into other, we would build the size and the quality and expertise where we'll have the first right of refusal in the world. And that really, uh, it's not just the economies of scale. It's just, you see, having that uh, knowledge base and the, and the ability to reinvest into uh, R&D and all that thing. And, and uh, 
train your people, invest in your people, send them abroad, uh, get them trained. So all this put together, I think we, it, 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 it helped us to grow. One thing which I must point out, which we started about, let's say, uh, 20 or 20 years ago and has matured during the path is, is the, that we have always had uh, mid-term, long-term plans. Uh, we don't uh, uh, decide on a day-to-day -day basis as unfortunately most of the Pakistan businesses have to do because there are no policies. Uh, but uh, one has to have some leap of faith and you see, do some analysis and where we want to be in next three, four, five years where the world is going to be, what's going to happen with Pakistan. And based on that, we have been, uh, you see, forming five-year visions. And every uh, every five years, we have a vision, 20, like we had 2015 vision, then 2020, now we have 2025. And we actually specify all the areas, what we, we need to do, what, or what are going to be. We do a very extensive SWOT analysis, pastoral analysis, look into the, you see, the, the threats which might come our way, how, how can we mitigate them. And we plan all our projects according to them. And uh, so that has helped us, you see, to keep focus on what we want to do, irrespective of the government policies, irrespective of what the international situation is doing. Uh, and that has helped us, you see, focus on, on a growth. And not. And when I say growth, it's not the top line. It is, it is the growth of our people, growth of our knowledge base. So I think uh, in a nutshell, that's, that's how I put it. Uh, well, why, why Interloop has been successful. That's, that's awesome. And, and there are some nuggets there that I want to touch a bit on. Um, your, your point on ethics stood out to me because, you know, just in terms of my own background, I come from a business family. My grandfather and my father had their own business in Pakistan. My father still does his own business of importing jute and things. And I remember as a child sort of going to his office in Jodia Bazaar and sitting and sitting with my grandfather. And they always said, right, you know, you need to be very ethical. And, and this is not the norm in Pakistan, but this was drilled down, right? And I remember engaging with or hearing some stories of traders who would, you know, send a sample of rice to England. Um, it was A grade. And then when the order came, they would do it A minus, right? And everyone knew that they were cutting corners. And that meant that the customer never returned. But this was the way things worked. Why is it, and I want to get your sense on this, is why is it that we have, you know, and ethics is a problem in business all over the world. Pakistan is not unique on this. But from your point of view, why is it that it is in the context, like we're a low trust society, that this is so important in terms of building a business in, within the Pakistani context um, from, you know, and where we are. And why is it so often that Pakistanis often view that, you know, we're not as ethical as perhaps we should be? I think it is the whole atmosphere. Uh, we can't, uh, if, if you start looking at the ethics, we can not isolate the business from the overall society. Uh, unfortunately, if, if you look at our ethics, we have, uh, as a society, uh, we uh, prefer to buy uh, medicines which are made in uh, Europe. We would, uh, you see, uh, it, when it comes to anything homegrown or homemade, we don't have trust in that. Uh, we, we can have a uh, uh, lot of discussions in the drawing rooms, but when it comes to paying taxes, I think uh, most of the elite, they don't pay taxes. They claim to be, uh, you see, uh, so honest and so patriotic, but uh, stealing taxes has been uh, considered as a norm now. Uh, 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 managing tax, as, as you said, managing taxation, or you see trying to avoid taxation all over the world is, is prevalent. But in Pakistan, actually paying tax is considered to be a crime. Uh, you, are not, you can't be proud of being uh, see, uh, uh, honest taxpayer. And any, any money which has been saved uh, without paying any taxes is not considered bad here. Uh, it, it is justified as a norm. Uh, we we lie, lie about our lifestyles. We, you see, we, we, so as a society, I think it was, we were not like that to start with. Uh, it is a gradual, you see, deterioration where, uh, and I think more, most of the blame uh, would go to the elite. Uh, as, as the time progressed, the, the elite capture, you see, they, that, that uh, uh, started happening and it, it grew. And with that, you see, the only um, uh, mark of respect in, in the name, in, in the minds of most of the people is now 
uh, money or wealth, unfortunately. So a quick buck uh, is, has become uh, probably the, the goal of everybody in Pakistan. And that has, you see, driven us away from ethics. And to, where you started, I think the, it is very, it's not just that you fulfill your uh, uh, commitments with your customers. or for, it, is, it is the whole thing. How do you deal with your employees? How do you, uh, in Pakistan, paying social security is considered as tax. Guys, social security is the, is the security for your own people who work for you. So it's, it's the concept which, which you see uh, drives it up. So I, I was myself not sure. I thought that maybe it is because we are in the export business, relatively speaking. So it is easier for us to say that we, 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 we are doing an ethical business and all that. But there are other aspects of the export business which uh, we have to deal with in Pakistan. Now, the, the, the proof of the pudding came when we caught, uh, to be, to be I, I would say we saw it happening, but uh, uh, on record, if I can mention something, uh, it is after our listing on the stock exchange. So as I said, we have some wonderful uh, uh, textile companies uh, besides Interloop, and there are other corporations in Pakistan which are purely Pakistani. And they're good corporations. I'm not trying to say that we don't have good corporations. But when we, when our IPO happened, our market cap was about, if I'm, I, I'm, I'm not wrong, 30 to 40% lower than the uh, highest market cap textile uh, composite firm on the stock exchange. Today, uh, our market cap, as you said, is the highest. And the next one is half the size, not even half the size of Interloose market cap. Uh, the number two company has a higher turnover, has a higher bottom line, and consistently than Interloop. So why would uh, Interloop have double the market cap of a company uh, which has uh, greater turnover consistently, greater uh, bottom lines consistently? Uh, I'm not saying that the other companies are not ethical. I think. Uh, the difference people see is the transparency and uh, uh, the the will to grow and to reinvest and not and not being in business just for to make money. Businesses have to make money, so I think that that makes a difference. And that I think you have to be uh, patient about it and uh, being best and being you see regarded as as very very you see uh, honourable has its value. That's, that's what youngsters who are starting up new things, they should, they should understand. They might not be able to uh, buy a sports car in the next five, 10 years, but I think the, the reputation which you'll build, a time will come then that the banks will be after you, the customers will be after suppliers will be after you, but you'll have to wait. There can't be, you see, uh, overnight miracles. Uh, you have to, in a society like Pakistan, you have to be patient. Do your thing, and uh, I think uh, you, you'll have success. Well, as they say, that it takes a hundred years to build a reputation, and maybe not even a day to destroy it, right? And I think it, it's a lot of hard work that goes into it. The other thing you mentioned was this focus on socks, and I, I think that was also awesome from my perspective as a student of business and business strategy, because I remember reading this case study in my undergrad about I think it was a Japanese or a Korean company that singularly focused on the zippers for jeans. And that was their thing. They continued to invest in that. And apparently 30, 40 years ago, zippers were a big problem because they weren't that quality. They would break often and there would be a big concern on customers. And they said, we're going to make the best zippers in the world. And now they are still making that and that's their core competency and they dominate the market. Right, because they're that good. And I think that, again, reinvest technology, figure out the problems. I think Interloop's done a fantastic job at that. You mentioned five-year plans. And one thing that I was reading about, and I asked people before this interview who sort of follow Interloop, that they talked highly of was the sustainability agenda of the business. Help us understand where it is, what the focus is, um, and why is it that Interloop is looking at the sustainability agenda from a business strategy perspective? Like what's driving you to focus so aggressively on this? So there, it's a very interesting question. Uh, when we, as, as I mentioned, when we started business, we were a cottage industry and none, none of us were business uh, school graduates. So we, we evolved, we learned how to do business uh, on the way. Um, so uh, we have we had seen that the companies would have a, 
a mission statement or a vision statement written on their websites or on their literature, but we had none uh, for the first many years. And when we, we thought that now we should have uh, a statement which should describe us, we, we sat together all the, uh, because we, we used to have some sort of a corporate culture from day one. We would always do things in a consultative way. So in the, in the board, we sat together and we, we thought that we should have a mission which actually describes us, which is not just a statement, which is, which, which is so it, we took several months to have discussions at various levels of the company uh, to see what is in our DNA, what we have been doing consciously or unconsciously as, as, as a business. And based on that, then we, uh, we came to a conclusion uh, and we uh, gave it words as our mission statement uh, uh, to, uh, and it is to uh, be an agent of positive change by pursuing ethical and sustainable business. So this, when we uh, devised this statement, uh, we, we knew that this, this whole statement is largely part of our DNA, but now everything which we do in future will be governed. This is our reason for existence now, from now on. So uh, we have to be agents for positive change for our stakeholders and community. Uh, and stakeholders is a very wide word, as you know. And uh, it has to be ethical and sustainable. So when we said sustainable, we, we meant uh, a triple bottom line. We, 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 from sustainability, we mean the uh, planet, the people, and the prosperity, some, some corporates, uh, call it profit, but I, we call it prosperity. So the triple P bottom line sustainability that everything, every project we do, every decision we make, we'll try to see that it is, it is under the umbrella of our mission. And we are not going to do anything which will negate our mission. So that's how we have been doing in, uh, for the last 15 years at least. And so sustainability was not a business strategy. It was a moral responsibility at that time. We thought it is as, as a business, we are responsible to do that. Uh, we are not here to just look after the shareholder interest. We are here to look after the stakeholder interest. And this business will exist to be an agent of positive change for all the stakeholders and to look after the sustainability. And since then, we started, you see, uh, setting our own targets. In our visions, we will always have our targets for even the planet sustainability. We have targets for the people's sustainability where we uh, have projects for the people who work for us and also the people in the community. And we, we have uh, five-year targets, how many schools we are going to build, how many uh, undergrads we are going to help uh, graduate, how many girls we are going to help graduate from, from universities and things like those. But then we have planet uh, sustainability goals every five years set. And this was before there was uh, too much of, uh, you see, talk of sustainability. And we were already on that path. We would not uh, undertake any priority if it is, it is you see, uh, against the sustainability agenda of our company. And now I think it is, it has now become a buzzword, uh, but we are already on that path. We, so we, we would, uh, we are not doing it that because one of our customers wants us to do, or, or, or there is, there is a environmental need from the law. We are doing it because it's our responsibility and we'll keep doing it. And we have been, uh, by the grace of God, leading it. Uh, and the international corporates are quoting us, in fact, using us as an example. And uh, in, in most of the, I, I don't want to name any, any customers or brands. I think in, in case of the topmost brands who are in, in way ahead in sustainability, uh, more or less our agendas are aligned because we are already on that path. So, so sustainability is part of our DNA. We are not doing it. Uh, even if today uh, the, 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 there is, there is a opportunity that you don't work on sustainability. You can still export or do things. It's, it has nothing to do with us. We have, we'll do it because it's our planet. It's our home. It's our country. It's our water. It's our people. It's our responsibility. So it's had nothing to do. Uh, now, the, because of that, if you get some business benefits, that was not the intent at the beginning. I hope uh, I was able to <laughs> clarify. 
No, I think I think that that's helpful, and I think Interloop was the first mover in that. Right now, you have checklists on ESG, and that unlocks capital access on lower rates and things Absolutely. like that. And it's almost become a gimmick in that sense, right? Because you can skew your business plan and add in a few key buzzwords that will give an analyst the ability to check mark, and and then you know, okay, your ESG and whatever that means, yes. and and there's no measurement yeah. about the vision itself. Absolutely, and you know, we were not even aware, but only I think maybe a year or ten months ago, we found out that after IPO, the largest, single largest shareholder of the free float is a fund which is invested invests on the basis of ESG, a foreign fund in a stock. We were not even aware, but yes, as you said, it does unlock a lot of potential. Uh, in, in today's world. And I think from a Pakistan perspective, right, it's awesome to see Interloop leading the way in this because my belief, and I've spoken to a few people on this podcast as well, is that, look, where the world is in terms of sustainability, renewable energy, new methodologies, um, we almost have an advantage of leapfrogging ahead because we are not tied to the old industrial economy the way, let's say, a United States or Europe is because they're old industrialist societies. So, as we invest, if we just keep our eye around the corner 25 years in advance, we can procure the technologies that are next generation by default. And we're not sort of stranded or handicapped by, uh, you know, legacy assets, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, and it's a huge opportunity for the country. I'll, I'll get back to it in a, in a bit. But you, another thing you said in, as a mission statement was agent of positive change. Um, textiles, if you look at Bangladesh or all over the world, um, you know, they've been a big positive agent of change in terms of women and their participation and growth in the labor force. Um, Interloops try to do this as well in Pakistan. And of course, Pakistan has serious cultural, um, educational challenges, societal challenges when it comes to women. I think uh, the PDHS data last uh, in 2018 that was released showed, and I was shocked that one in four Pakistani women suffer from some level of abuse and harassment since age 15, right? Um, many majority of them don't participate in the labor force, including those with tertiary education. Um, what's Interloop's role in sort of bringing about that positive change? And, and what are you looking at in terms of the communities you're a part of, the workers that work for you in terms of getting women to be a part of labor force, not only sort of as the stitchers and things like that, but coming up through as a managerial talent, so to speak. So there, uh, if we, if we, you mentioned Bangladesh, it is, you see the, the, the again, we have to see uh, how much damaging it has been. Uh, Bangladesh, society in Bangladesh is not much different from us. The, actually, I think if, if, uh, Though their state, and rightfully so, their state has, you see, kept itself secular and not, you see, try to, uh, you see, bring religion into everything. But uh, generally speaking, people in Bangladesh are, are uh, more following followers of religion than us. I've seen people over there uh, in ordinary namaz, more uh, people at, in the mosque than in, at our Juma prayers. But that doesn't stop them from, you see, bringing women folk into the uh, work stream. Um, and it has helped them a lot. Uh, not only the women folk, I, because I was in conversation with a head of UN women posted in Pakistan who was, who was in uh, Bangladeshi. And he did mention it with figures, but I can just give you uh, the general idea that you see by bringing in women workforce, not only that the efficiencies of the businesses, today 75, 76% of their garment workforce is women. We have operated in Bangladesh, have seen them work. So not only that they benefited, I think the, the marriageable age in Bangladesh went up by three years, the statistics show. Previously, the girls were married away in 14, 15 years age on average. Now, the marriages were delayed and they would work to, you see, earn uh, for the families, for themselves. And when even the, with three years of marriage age going up, even when they get married, they are, the, uh, the time uh, difference between the marriage and the first child is about three years now because they don't want to continue working. So what happened is that the, the, uh, there was a five years, five to six years lag now for the last 
15, 20 years or the first child of, of a girl. So you can imagine how much um, it has helped them to bring down their population growth. So they were, they, they, they had more population than West Pakistan in 1971. And today they are 180 or so million and we are 220 million and counting. Uh, so this, this has some uh, indirect benefits. Uh, about interloop, you see, again, we have been in textiles and then having our, uh, to start with having our main operations only in Lailpur or what we call uh, Festabar today, it was very difficult to convince girls, uh, especially with tertiary education to come and work for a textile company. But now today, by the grace of God, I think we have uh, uh, attained a reputation where everybody wants to work for Interloop because they think that there's the conditions. So you, you can't, you see, just employ, you have to provide the conditions not by just the corporates, but the male colleagues, they have to be conditioned uh, to give that respect and that space uh, to, to women and also encourage women to, you see, when they enter the company, they are no more of women, they, they are just executives. I keep telling our people that you, you are not a female merchandiser or a male merchandiser or a lady doctor or a male doctor. You are a doctor or a merchandiser or an engineer. So we, we hire a lot of STEM degree uh, girls also. And they are working and we have a lot of girls now in managerial cadre, in the senior manager, general managers, vice presidents. Uh, they are rising up uh, gradually and uh, girls who have worked with us have been picked up by international brands to work overseas also, which I am very happy to do that. Uh, we have uh, had, you see, not only just the, you have to create some policies uh, which we have created in, in interloop and uh, I think it, it, it's, it's a long subject so I would rather not touch upon that but you also have to have some affirmative actions now every year when we induct uh, um, management training officers as an affirmative action we have uh, a requirement that 50% of the MTOs will have to be girls so every year so the last many years so there's this this year we inducted about 80 management training officers 40 of them were girls and we keep on doing that. And we are giving them reconnect uh, policy that if they leave, have to leave the company because of personal reasons, like getting, she's getting married or their family is being transferred to another, it's not a commercial reason. They can come back to the company whenever they are ready. Or they can, for example, there is, there is a bare maternity lease, but then uh, once a child is born, uh, there is a one year of uh, grace period for the, for the female uh, executive to pick her own flexible times, whether she wants to come, want to come one day, two day, she doesn't need to get approval from her manager. So it's up to her, give them flexibility uh, to provide the uh, world-class uh, daycares uh, and uh, you see uh, centers. And uh, we have now uh, daycare centers on all our plants and offices. And you won't believe me that they, they don't want to take the kids away till they're five, six years old. When they can go to the kindergarten, but the kindergarten at the premises is so good that uh, so these you have to provide these uh, 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 facilities and also, as I said, to um, make the male colleagues understand how you have to accommodate uh, the females and not to you see uh, harass them or whatever. Uh, on the on the worker side, uh, the Pakistan laws have been very you see uh, uh, have not been conducive. Uh, in the Factories Act, they don't allow that uh, you have a shift which is uh, not rotated and the third shift for women in the night is not allowed. So you, uh, in, on the expensive equipment where you have to rotate shifts, it's difficult to put in women, too much women uh, into. So I, we are working with the government to get those things removed. We are trying to do things like uh, investing huge amounts of money to build hostels uh, for workers even, women, female workers, so that if they have to rotate in shifts, they don't have to bother about, you see, traveling at night and all those things. Uh, the society has to, you see, it, it, is, it is not just good for the business or the women. I think it's the whole society will benefit if we let more women work for, for businesses and factories and everywhere. And I think the investments that you've made um, is awesome, right? Because even from a purely business perspective, an employee, male or female, who's not worried about childcare, who's not worried about where they're leaving their kid, getting a phone call, hey, he stuck something in his ear, now you need to come, um, et cetera, is a more productive employee 
they're more focused absolutely. on their job. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And, and I think the things you're providing are best in class in the world. I mean, there are many US companies that do not provide what you just said uh, is offered on the premises. So I think that's awesome. Um, I want to shift gears in the second half of this conversation towards Pakistan, broadly speaking. And I follow you on Twitter and I think diplomatically you share your insights in terms of what you think um, is going on. And I would love for you to share your perspective on where things are. Let's start with the broader economy. I think um, we're back in the IMF. Uh, the prime minister announced um, cut in petrol prices, electricity prices. That puts a big question mark on where the IMF program is. But really, it's a populist decision that he himself or the PTI itself is not the only party to follow. Others have done it since at least I was younger, and you've seen it perhaps longer as well. Um, where do you see the economy? I mean, we continue going, and I don't like the word boom-bust cycle. A lot of people refer to it as that because for there to be a boom, you need to have 6 to 8% growth for 5, 6, 7 years. We don't even have that. Um, how do you see the economic prospects, and, and where do you see consistently policymakers go wrong when it comes to fixing the core issues that we continue to face. So there, I think the, in your last part, you have uh, mentioned what I was about to say, that uh, uh, we, we start, you see, rejoicing uh, too early on a 5-6% growth for a few months. We think that now everything is okay. To be honest, I think, let's be realistic. Let's see how our economy has done. And I'm not talking about the current government or any other political government or the uh, martial law dictatorships. Uh, if, you, if you look at what we have done during the last 15, 20 years, and if you look where we are headed for the next five years, no matter what we do today, the way we are managing it, our, our economy is in a very, very, very bad shape. The a few months of something hap good happening doesn't mean that the economy is on the right track. It has never been on the right track for the last many years. Let's be very clear from my point of view, unfortunately. Uh, and it, it, it uh, we can keep on, you see, uh, debating this. There could be, and I am not an economist, I don't, uh, but I can, as a, I, as a layman, I can see that uh, uh, the, the reason is that, uh, and we will, I don't think we'll be able to very easily fix it. IMF or no IMF or bringing in visits from World Bank or IMF or whatever. Uh, because you see, there is, first of all, there is lack of political will all along, uh, uh, across the board. And th again, I said, uh, as I said, it's not just the political parties, it's the dictatorships also. And on top of that, which is even more harmful, is the elite capture. And that elite capture has converted into, it used to be maybe one or two vested interests. Now there are multiple vested interests, which immediately you see, try to uh, capture the policy of the country to shape it in their own direction. And we end up nowhere. There's a few people, a few sectors making a lot of money and uh, we are back to it. So I, I think we, we as, you, as you know, Better than maybe there are two issues, uh, always two issues in the economy. There is there is a current account deficit and there's a fiscal deficit. Uh, and let me also, you see, before I, I, uh, I go there, I think we will need a charter of economy to be agreed by everybody. And we'll have to vigorously follow that for the next five to 10 years if we, if we want to stabilize our economy. Uh, saying after one and a half year of uh, or two years of uh, IMF program that we have uh, now achieved macroeconomic stability, it's it's I don't think there is, and within two months it's all gone. We we just change paths, and so we we first of all we need the charter of economy, and everybody will have to you see, and especially the elite will have to um, either be made to agree to that, and you see comply to that, and it's not that. Uh, just the middle class and the lower middle class and the lower class have to pay the price of the charter of economy. Uh, um, on the on the fiscal deficit, I think it's. I don't think it's a, it's a big problem. On the current account side, we have a problem, which is not easy to fix. On the fiscal side, I don't think we have a problem. Look at the boom we have at the upper level. People are minting money. They're the their highest number of. Uh, luxury car sale in Pakistan and, 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 and the lower class and lower middle class, they do, are not even getting two meals. 
so there is lot of money there there is lot of lead capture it's just a question of you see if, if we can use nadra to so wonderfully implement the vaccination program better than even some some of the first world economies why can't you use it for uh, you see uh, getting after the people who are spending so much of money it's 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 not it's a no brainer we have to have, uh, you see uh, withdraw all those tax exemptions to those vested uh, interests those uh, elite groups real estates and everybody everybody who comes into that i'm not just uh, mentioning real estate and you see plug those areas where you can park your untaxed money and start taxing people there is there is there is no uh, shortcut to that you can't uh, gradually go after and gradually keep on increasing there is so much of data is now available so much of data is available and within in this age of uh, data if we can't you see bring people into tax net i think it it is simply lack of political will or giving favors to certain vested uh, the other thing is which which is doable which is doable is the uh, uh, soes we are we are wasting a, um, almost a trillion rupees on the state owned enterprises it's a no brainer why can't we just everybody agrees and we get rid of all that and we it's a it's it's almost as much as we spend on defense so people like me they they talk a lot about spend defense spending which should be obviously controlled but we don't talk about the trillion rupees which is being wasted on on and the state owned enterprises year after year so the, it's in my opinion in a in layman's opinion it's it's not a difficult fix it's just you need the will power and you have to you see get rid of those people who start to influence the policy if at all there is a policy uh, because of their vested interest on the current account side i think we have a serious problem uh, because uh, uh, we are our economy is dependent on imports and by curbing imports you cannot you see grow uh, our energy needs are there uh, we don't have uh, any metallurgy chemicals uh, machinery we have to import that uh, but i think in the country we have not been able to inculcate a uh, uh, export culture where investment is made into value addition and we can increase the productivity of our uh, not only people but our our, our plants our the way we work uh, we have not been able to use the knowledge uh, uh, side of our economy um, we have we have a youth bulge we you uh, when we i i just mentioned we it took 80 mtos when we we, we call for applications there are i think more than 24 25000 uh, gpa 3 plus applicants for a for a private company so there are thousands and thousands and thousands of graduates we have it's just that probably the quality of education needs to be tweaked why we were not able to you see develop an it based economy which can export that that can be uh, i i was the other day i was talking to the ceos of one of the top it companies in pakistan and he said that we need about 20 uh, 5000 people to export uh, 1 billion dollars of uh, it software and uh, all we get in pakistan is probably 5000 which would need 3 months of training to become Uh, uh competent enough and the rest 20000 would need 6 to 9 months so our universities need to be and then how about uh, uh, some health tourism why why have we not been able to invest into uh training our paramedics and nursing staff doctors you can get but the basic thing for hospitals is that look at india we can we can have billions and dollars of uh, you see health tourism so there could be service industry and the export industry working hand in hand and the government has to now you see we when we uh, there is a anti export bias by saying that there is a lot of subsidies going on without you see actually uh, trying to see whether it's a subsidy or not if you are uh, trying to have a same, same electricity price all across pakistan whether there is a theft or whether there is a losses and then you are trying to transfer the a burden of the domestic consumers which needs to be subsidized to the industry by levelizing the tariff it's actually the industry subsidizing and then you give some money and you say okay we are giving you subsidy to lower your you have to give money to the domestic side and not overload the industrial sectors with the extra expenses which you do to because of inefficiency and all that and so that creates a negative bias 
against export that they are getting a lot of subsidies yeah they are actually paying more than the international prices for electricity so this is what we have to see that we have to bring down the cost of doing business but exports without increasing services and goods exports i think we we will have a very very bad uh, future years we need to work on that and relentlessly for many years to work on our our, our current account deficit i think one of the things that's you know came to my mind as you were speaking or two things were um one and this was just happened yesterday a friend of mine messaged you know because i wrote about how the current account deficit is a problem but what our policy makers ignore consistently is that you can plug the current account deficit by fdi um and why is it that our fdi flows are not increasing particularly fdi flows in export sectors because that's how you get the expertise the productivity enhancements etc and he messaged me is like well you keep arguing for exports and fdi and the policy makers keep giving you more debt and distortions in the market right and and your electricity example made me think of that distortion in the sense that because there is a core fundamental problem in the energy sector all the way from energy mix to distribution and transmission the distortion then creates more distortions in the way quote unquote subsidies are provided and things are leveled off and we're just not having the conversation to you know or the will to fix these core issues in the market we see the same thing in the wheat market um we see the same thing in the real estate market in the sense that i was looking at the data the city of pune in india which is like a tiny city by indian standards raises more in real estate taxes than the entire province of sindh like it's insane it should not be happening like you know that's 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 a resource that that's there to be tapped into because elites own property and we're not taxing them and everybody else pays 17% sales tax that's regressive it's just insane um the one thing that struck to me and these are been in conversations when um people from pakistan come here to washington um a lot of times i'm told look pakistan's a great place to invest because there is um high return on equities in these key sectors um and i always press them i'm like well from an economic perspective if there is a high roe it means capital will flow into that sector because there are un, you know higher than anticipated profits so the profit rate has to level off and i'm like well what's your policy from a you know industry sectoral perspective to level that up? why is it that there are persistently high roes and i think that gets to your elite capture point and the policy point right is that it it's it's cornered the market um so it's just a, I, the charter of economy is so vital i think that's the only way to progress and i don't think that's going to happen given where we are politically but i hope i'm wrong um musaddiq saab like sorry that was a long monologue in terms of no, no, my no, own my own views coming no, 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 out here we are just discussing the economy yeah. and i think you have a point which i completely agree with you and and so let me ask you and, and we're sort of on the tail end of our conversation um from your point of view interloop no interloop just as a, a citizen living in pakistan who watches the economy has a stake in the business uh, of the country um what are some risks that sort of you know you think about that maybe keep you awake at night in terms of you know what like we need to solve for this immediately or have a strategy to deal with it because if we don't the economy the political economy society itself is just going to be worse off than even where it is right now so just help us understand what risks that you you know continue to think about in the country so ozair there could be many uh, which we can think of but as you said maybe a couple uh, uh, first of all you see uh, economy itself is a big risk for pakistan and how can we fix it we have discussed a lot on that that's a unending discussion uh, economy itself is is then uh, is has is becoming a weak economy is becoming a threat for pakistan and many of the issues which we have are because of our weak economy because of uh, the the uh, increased poverty and all that but you see the uh, if if we put that aside uh, one thing which worries me is is the is the intellectual and geopolitical isolation of pakistan uh we have uh, as i mentioned bangladesh and other countries i think uh, the state has been complacent and we have uh, misused religion uh, too much uh, in the last 2 3 decades and uh, the whole uh, fabric of society is you see now uh, fragmented into various uh, beliefs and thoughts and uh, 
very primitive uh, uh, sort of uh, approach towards uh, uh, the what the religion actually interpreted interpretation is and the way it is being uh, you see implemented in a society whether through legal system or through you see uh, de facto uh, you see implementation uh, due to the blackmail of certain uh, segments so that that is not because um, uh, i am ashamed of being uh, or what the world would say i think it as a society it's hurting us it's hurting us very badly and it's hurting our growth and hurting our children the uh, when we talk of geopolitics i think we have uh, we have been uh, uh, i don't think uh, we have any uh, decent amount of respect in the committee of uh, nations uh, we can claim to be a nuclear power or whatever uh, we don't have a consistent policy in fact we 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 are moving from door to door and in two months our policy appears to be shifting some some, some one day we are pro turkey the other day we are pro middle east and then we are pro china and then we have to look towards usa and all that and our interests are in the west so we do, uh, we have uh, become uh, you see a laughing stock if if i may uh, we have to correct that that is going to it's not easy it is uh, we we cannot afford to be uh, at that at the level where we are uh, on the practical side there are other issues like the water is going to become a big threat and uh, because our subsoil water and our water resources are becoming uh, scarce and i think uh, i'm really afraid where we are headed and that is uh, also putting our uh, uh, food security at risk you have already seen you mentioned wheat uh, we are despite claiming to have bumper crops of wheat we have continuously import wheat which is i don't know why and uh, we have to import cotton we have uh, sugar uh, everything is you see we don't have enough uh, edible oil uh, so we these are the things which are going to be which are related to economy but i think they, they as, as a as in on the country's uh, stability and existence is under threat because of these things if i if i may no i i fully agree with you and i'll just add one um to your side of risk and i think you will agree with this as well is we have a youth um, and we have a youth dividend potentially it's not realized and it's it's also the flip side of it is a ticking time bomb and i just put myself in the shoes of a 20 year old um you know out of toba take singh let's say or out of peshawar or quetta you have aspirations ambitions because you have a cell phone you're on tiktok you're watching what's going on in the world and the world is progressing rapidly your generation in the world is progressing rapidly despite all sorts of issues and if your ambition and aspiration is not met let's say you fast forward to 2035 you're 35 years old you have three or four children because that's the average for the youth in this country you're going to be a very bitter human being you're not going to be a good parent you're not going to be able to provide for your children the way you anticipate your own dreams will not be met and i think that's a very dangerous place for a country like pakistan to be from a stability perspective because that's millions of households um unhappy and that has an impact on the next generation forget about that in the immediate see they will be really you know angry people who may do a lot of things that perhaps the elite selfishly of pakistan need to think about that scenario and as you said be willing to give a little bit more as part of a charter of economy um to grow the pie overall for everybody and i think that to me is a huge uh thing that we often don't talk about in pakistan is that there is a youth dividend but if it's not realized it's going to be a ticking time bomb and it is a ticking time bomb um absolutely absolutely completely agree so musaddiq sahab this has been wonderful um thank you for taking out the time for gracing us with your presence for this milestone at pakistanomy before i let you go um i would just ask any books that you would recommend people pick up and read it they don't have to be about business just something that has deeply influenced you and you think people should you should pay attention to so unfortunately i am not a, a very active reader to be honest let me be very honest i do read but i am a slow reader so um uh, i i looked at couple of your uh, podcasts from the past so i i knew this question might be coming so i uh, the two or three books which i have read and i found them different or uh, interesting uh, i picked up so one is uh, if if you are interested in uh, uh, development economics or economy 
uh, one book which i i liked a lot is uh, how uh, china became capitalist so uh, this is this is a book uh, which in detail it's a very interesting book uh, explains how uh, deng xiaoping transformed china after the cultural revolution into the into the market economy and it's a very interesting read the other book which i read is is uh, is not fiction uh, but it it might have some element of fiction but it is it is uh, the uh, romantic life of mr jena uh, and uh, and all the all the problems he went through and trying to explain we talk about his uh, marriage and all that and uh, there are but you see trying to understand what he was going through uh, a book written again by uh, sheila reddy who who uh, has used uh, uh, letters and other things from mr jena and the book is mr and mrs jena the marriage that shook india so this is a very interesting book for people who want to understand uh, mr jena uh, and his personal life and the problems he was faced and the uh, uh the intensity of love he had for uh, young ruti and how she so it 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 does uh, remove a lot of doubts which uh, are there in the minds of people and uh, put it in the perspective of uh, uh, a political leader who has uh, his own uh, responsibilities also so it's a very interesting book the other book which i am now reading these days is trying to read these days is i am as i said is, is, is as a slow reader is by dr sanjay gupta uh, keep sharp i know you, um, a lot of people have read it and uh, they recommend it so this is a very interesting book uh, for people of all ages keep sharp so i and hope thank you helps. for those no this is really helpful i'm definitely going to order uh, mr and mrs jena book because i read the soul spokesman by dr jalal um stanley wolpert's biography of jena is a classic so i i want to sort of complete the trilogy so to speak and get a bit into the yes, personal yes, life yes it will be very the, different yeah it, it's it will be a totally different thing about his personal life and i think the china book is, is super interesting in the sense that particularly for a pakistani audience you often hear you know should we you know replicate the china model and i have jokingly remind people um that if you want to do what china did um the path through that lies through the cultural revolution and perhaps you want to read about what happened in the cultural revolution especially if you are on the upper echelon of society yes yes and then the which led to you see so much of uh, problems and all that and yeah that exactly exactly so so I, if you have interest in that i think if you have not read that book i recommend that you do read this book also no i'll check Very that out so so thank you for that and again thank you for your time for sharing your thoughts your insights i think interloop is a shining star and and sort of shows the world what pakistan is capable of so thank you for building this organization and helping build it with your uh, employees and your managers and your shareholders and your stakeholders um i love the mission statement in terms of being a positive agent for change so um i personally you know i keep an eye in terms of what interloop is doing so more thank you, good Zay. luck to you, you and and thank you again and inshallah when i'm in pakistan next i'll get to see you in person and we'll talk more please do please do thank you so much for having me it has been a pleasure thank you there good luck with everything thank you